The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. I uh, hate to start this program. Peace off. and welcome. Sorry about that, Scotty. <laughs> I forgot I had my mute on. <laughs> Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is March 30th, 2016. From the Washington Post, the feds have resumed a controversial program that lets cops take stuff and keep it. The Justice Department has announced that it is resuming a controversial practice that allows local police departments to funnel a large portion of assets seized from citizens into their own coffers under federal law. We'll get into that shortly. New York City raked in a whopping $1.9 billion in fees and fines last year, a 13.3% jump over the last four years, a report released Thursday found. We'll break down the stats and show you how police quotas combined with racist policing for profit schemes in the Big Apple amount to legal extortion, at least. From the Atlantic.com, we found the rise of 1,000 small jails. New analysis shows that the growth in the jail population is happening in unexpected places. An article that explains how growth in the jail population is not driven by the largest counties. It has taken root in the thousand very small ones across the United States. The recent article by researchers from the Human Trafficking Center reads, Constitutional loophole allows forced labor in the U.S. Inside, they attest to everything we've been telling the world for the past five years here on New Abolitionist Radio. After lobbying such groups for years, we consider this a major breakthrough. In the week, in this week's Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad segment, we remember the, tra- uh, we remember the tragedy of Omar Pouncey, a 28-year-old Flint man who acted as his own attorney at trial, trial, who was wrongfully convicted of carjacking, armed robbery, and weapons charges, was released from prison this past Monday. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Laura Smith Haviland, December 1808 to April 1898. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-641-715-3660. Extension 549-032-POUND. 
just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? Uh, same old, same old week in, week out, day in, day out, and that's abolitionism through whatever way I can uh, do it and spread that message. So um, I'm surviving behind the enemy lines. I'm excited today, uh, as well as a few artists I work with. Uh, we just released the project, The Incarceration Nation in Black and White. It's a 12-minute uh, video that really uh, shows exactly what we're facing in numbers that cannot be denied, and it's supported with some incredible artists who provided spoken word poetry for us, because, you know, I'm a poet, and I try to present these things in ways that will uh, spread that as well. But we just released this on New Abolitionist Radio uh, Facebook page. If you want to check it out, it is. Uh, I would think that is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I uh, think you I, even uh, I was, you got to see it in advance. As a matter of fact, no, I didn't. You said you was gonna tag me in it, but I never uh, saw the tag. But you know, I'm being tagged by a lot of people. But um, I think you uh, posted about an hour ago. I think I see it on there, uh, the incarceration nation in black and white. Yes, I do. Um, let's go ahead and, I mean, do you want to uh, share that audio with our listeners before we get into the program? Oh, no, that's uh, it's actually too long. It's 12 minutes long, uh, okay. and it's primarily video information, so you'll need to see it. Oh, so okay. make sure you either go to uh, New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook or my page, Max Partis on Facebook, and it's right there. Uh, we'll be sharing it in the coming days, of course, because we feel that this is a bombshell of information. It took me four months to gather this together and then to simplify it into a way where people can see exactly what's occurring state by state. It will blow your mind. There's no doubt about that. And the music will inspire you. Most definitely. I'm going to uh, check it out. Is uh, Johanna coming with us uh, during the intro um, time this week, or will he be a little late? Uh, I'm not sure. He's not here, so I imagine he would be um, getting off work later than he does and be calling us as soon as possible. Awesome. I've been seeing a lot of deaths this past week. Uh, we didn't put any on our list of things to talk about, but there's just so many of them. Everything from 16-year-old boys to 68-year-old men just being shot unarmed on video. Uh, with it's just you can see it right there on video. It's just driving me nuts, Scotty. And uh, I've been having a lot of discussions about abolition with people who call themselves prison abolitionists, you know, and it makes me wonder why they limit abolition to just prison, because we know slavery is far more than just the prisons themselves. And I've been doing a lot of research about that and uh, discovering that during the 1800s, we had the same issue with the abolitionist movement, where there were gradualists and there were immediatists, which is a word I didn't even know exist until, until recently. But those were people that wanted slavery to end then, right there and then. And then there was others who wanted to wait 25 years to work it out, or 30 or 50 years to work it out. And, uh, of course, there were those who believed violence was the only way that it was going to occur, uh, a, a civil war, and then there were those who believed the, the hey, policy. Sometimes I believe that. Sometimes I believe that. John Brown believed that. Uh, others who worked with him believed that. His sons believed that. Uh, Frederick Douglass believed that. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of abolitionists believe that. I believe that now. You know, sometimes when you look at the thick, just the thickness of the corruption 
that we see in Washington, D.C. Um, and with these politicians and what have you. And then just um, to put it in kind terms, just a mass unawareness of what's really going on. And we talk a lot about the symptoms, but it's it's not often that people get to the root of the problem. But we have been seeing that more and more in mainstream media. In fact, uh, Christopher Irvin, the abolitionist candidate running for Baltimore City Council in the 5th District, I believe, uh, shared an article from a human trafficking uh, organization. And uh, they wrote about the huge exception clause in the Constitution. And I had... Yeah, uh, that's one of our stories tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'll wait till we get to that. But um, so we are starting to see more and more here recently, Max, I would say in 2016, more than we ever seen in the five years we've been on air. Would you say that's accurate? I would say that's accurate and expected. It was part of the plan from the very beginning exactly. when we stepped into this, knowing what we had to do. But, you know, back to the thing about the uh, discrepancies with abolition and, and what people want and believe. Uh, one of the things that I, I was talking with Bob Whitnick from Decarcerate the Garden State earlier about is that our biggest problem at this point is we can't agree that this is slavery. See, the abolitionists may have differed in how to fight slavery or end slavery in their opinions, but they all agreed on one thing, that what they were facing was legalized slavery. Here in the United States, we can't come to that consensus. We keep calling it all these other things and focusing on certain sections of what is occurring to us rather than looking at the picture as a whole and simply saying that we're facing legalized slavery. That's our uphill battle, but we're winning it a little bit at a time. Yes, we are. And that is because we have, let's say, built relationships. You may not see me or Max on uh, CNN or MSNB, any other corporate networks, uh, but you will see people that we may talk to, may even interview on this program. And like I was seeing Nina Turner, she was on an internet radio show. What was that? Our Common Ground on a show that you were a guest on. Then I seen yes. her on CNN and I was like the sister representing and keeping it real, you know, on the issues that, that you know, uh, she was talking about. And what have you. And and so uh, just telling it like it is, man. And, and that's what we set out to do, to tell it like it is. It ain't my mass incarceration. It ain't, um, you know, whatever other term you want to come up with, involuntary servitude, whatever, man. It's slavery. It's slavery. And just because, you know, uh, you don't see uh, people in nothing but a pair of pants, uh you know, being strapped to a tree and whoop, you know, you ain't seeing no Jodies getting whipped cause she broke the eggs and, and things of that, that nature. And so you don't think it exists cause you have this image that's been put into your minds by the media, you know, about what slavery is and what sl slavery isn't. So, um, yeah, we I saw recently you shared a video with me, Scotty, where this, uh, gentleman, uh, color was, uh, We've seen something like this once before where he was talking about emancipation for animals and saying how the 13th Amendment abolished slavery for all humans. And all and, the uh, humans, really just too. Ridiculous conversation. You want to say anything about that? Yeah. I yeah. know it bothered you. I know um, it didn't bother me so much as in that, you know, I wanted to, you know, slap them around or anything like that. <laughs> but. I mean, re just that 
see, that's a vegan thing. Uh, Sister Zion, who hosts the show Shifting Paradigms on Sundays, Sunday uh, afternoons here on Black Talk Radio Network, she said that that's how she, you know, she had hinted that, because she's a vegan, and she was like, he, you know, that sounds like a vegan, you know, uh, somebody that's saying, you know, now we must free the animals and comparing the animals to slaves and, and what have you. And so um, it's just, man, this dude... He seems so intelligent, so convincing, so photogenic, you know what I'm saying, in front of the camera and coming across like he know what he's talking about. And then that's planting in people's minds that, you know, the 13th Amendment actually did. And I left a comment for him and um, I just simply said, you know, uh, anybody that has a proper comprehension of English can read the 13th Amendment and say that slavery hasn't. Because he, he threw the caveat in there that, uh, you know, um, it abolished slavery in all its forms for human beings, you know, and, and clearly if you read the 13th Amendment, it says, you know, except as a punishment for crime, meaning that, you know, it can be used as a punishment, forced labor, and what have you, so. Well, yeah. that wouldn't apply to animals because they never get charged with crimes. Yeah, so. Man, and you know, there was one other thing that's not one of our stories, but I would like to give a good shout out to is out in Tallahassee, uh, Florida. The state cancels a for-profit juvenile justice contract worth $90 million. And that was uh, directly relatable to the movements of the abolitionists in Florida. And, uh, you know, people were fighting against this mass incarceration. So uh, shout out to you guys who made that happen. We got to keep hitting them in their pocket like this. But like somebody said, though, um, they commented on my um, personal page and where I share the information and they bring up a good point. They was like, you know, really they're canceling the, they're canceling the contract for a company, but they're going to award that contract to somebody else. You know mm. what I'm saying? So that's just, you know, a different enslaver going to be getting that money. And that is from the way I analyzed it. That is a point. But still, though, um, you can't discount that you got movement on the battlefield because you was able to point out uh, that, you know, this particular uh, private enslaver was, you know, just really abusive in, in what have you in, in, in his uh, practice of slavery. Um, so, I mean, there it, it is a victory and you move the media, you um, also raise mass awareness. You know, and you got the state to act. You got the, you know, the people with the power, the politicians to act in Florida. And so, but, you know, have a martini, whatever, to do a toast. And then, because, you know, it's always good to celebrate even the small victories to keep morale up and what have And then just keep pushing, keep pushing. Yeah, we take our victories where we can get them. I, I kind of figured just based on an estimate, Scotty since we've been here and what we've been reporting on, we are directly responsible for close to half a billion dollars in losses from the prison industry uh, just by the messages that we've been putting out and pushing so many to de divest from prison industries everywhere from UC uh, to uh, the uh, Columbia University uh, to on and on where they're just taking their money out of the prison industry. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to say it, that we have helped to make sure that that has happened, that they have begun to lose money. And we know one of the ways to end slavery is to make it more expensive than it is worth. Yeah, but, you know, um, there's a saying that comes to my mind about, you know, um, people don't know until they know. But then once they know, 
it's on them how they choose to react to it. So we've been putting out this information on a consistent basis for the past five years. Uh, talked to many different people from all walks of life about it, from a, a person who has been enslaved to people who are enslaved, who have called in, you know, uh, to the network, and then, you know, um, uh, others who are working on the issue. So we did our job in raising awareness, but the boots on the grounds, the individuals out there, the abolitionists out there, it took them to to hear what we, the information, get the information and then act on it through various ways. You know, all these student movements now, the University of Houston is being targeted for its investment in private prisons and what have you. I don't know if you saw that article. I don't think it's part of the story uh, uh, tonight. But, no, I haven't. But, you know, the Columbia divestment uh, was uh, successful. Columbia University. We're talking about preeminent so-called universities, top universities, most wealthy and endowed universities. And they're making their, you know, money off of slavery. And, in fact, many of these colleges might even been started, you know, by enslavers and what have you. Um, so, so, you know, the people are acting on the information and, you know, that, that's no small thing. So I'm glad to have played a role in the entire movie. Amen, brother. Amen. I, I was telling John, uh, I was telling Johanan recently that, uh, we're blessed to even be used as instruments in this type of a change, you know, just to be uh, able to see it occurring with our own eyes and knowing that for the first time in 150 years, uh, slavery as an institution seems to have to be in a position where it needs to defend itself it and is. fight against something. And what it's fighting against is the abolitionist movement. Exactly. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton has been confronted by, uh, you know, grassroots activists associated with Black Lives Matter. Um, I shot at Delray McKesson on Twitter when, you know, he revealed on Twitter that he was going into a meeting along with other members of the associated with the Black Lives Matter movement into that meeting with Clinton. And I just sent him a simple tweet that said, ask her about the private prison lobbyists that's working on her, you know, campaign. And so he asked her, they asked her in this meeting, then this thing, you know, uh, she's fired the lobbyists. They're no longer working for her campaign, you know, but then you still got others working uh, that's associated with the private prison industry working in other areas of your campaign. But she had to defend herself by saying, you know, out in uh, private prisons. It's going to take more than that. I, well, I wouldn't believe her to, you know, uh, on anything she says, you know, but that's just me personally being a student of, of the history of her political history. But, you know, she is, that's something, you know, I'm an end of, of slavery. I'm an end, excuse me, private prisons is what she said. Um, and then the young lady on the debate that was in, where were they at? Were they in Michigan, I think? And, uh, uh, Ohio. Ohio and, uh, uh, and the abolitionists. A uh, black woman asked her the question and said, some are calling it modern slavery. Did Hillary Clinton try to push back at that and say, well, I would I would say modern slavery is going a little too far. But, you know, I do agree. She yeah, she she agreed to that terminology. So what, you know, who else do you need to hear it from? Huh? Well, Hillary, as Obama said during the 2000 election, uh, election, is she will say anything to get elected. That was his words. And, you know, just 
in a humorous way. Last week, on that, um, an abolitionist asked the Sanders campaign, as you mentioned, Nina Turner, if he would be working with the new abolitionists to move the Justice is Not for Sale Act forward. And Hillary Clinton heard about it and said she would work with the new abolitionists, said she's always worked with the new abolitionists. Her whole life has been about abolition, and she was the first to go to slavery and say, hey, you got to abolish this. Yeah, like she went to Wall Street and told them to stop. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's what you were. Hey, we got Johanna joining us. Peace and welcome, Brother Johanna. Just in time for us to start him out with our first story today, man. How was your week? It's all good, fellas. Good to be here, as always. I've been listening to you all chopping it up, so I heard, of course, some excellent points and some bombs dropped. You got uh, Hillary on the record for acknowledging modern day slavery, like we've been talking about over the last few days. So, I mean, there it is. Yeah, I, personally, you know, I, I keep saying every workshop I give and every time I go to an event to talk to people, whether it be students or just town hall meetings, that the most important thing we can do is to change our mind. We have to come to a consensus on what it is we're facing and stop making these words that never existed before. Uh, like uh, polytripping or whatever the hell they call these things nowadays and start calling this one single thing legalized slavery. That will change everything. I'm certain. Well, speaking of legalized slavery, uh, would you like to start out with our first story or are you still getting yourself uh, ready? Yeah, I'm still pulling up the links to everything that we chose. Go ahead. All right, we're going to start out with the uh, first story coming from the Washington Post. The feds have resumed the controversial program that lets cops take stuff and keep it, and that's the headlines. The Justice Department has announced that it is resuming a controversial practice that allows local police departments to funnel a large portion of assets seized from citizens into their own coffers under federal law. The equitable sharing program gives police the option of prosecuting some assets forfeitures cases under federal instead of state law particularly in instances where local law enforcement officers have a relationship with the federal authorities as a part of a joint task force. Federal forfeiture policies are more permissive than many state policies, allowing police to keep up to 80% of assets that they seize. The Justice Department has suspended payments under this program in December, if you guys remember, due to the budget cuts included in last year's spending bill. In the months since we made the difficult decision to defer equitable sharing payments because of the $1.2 billion rescinded from the asset forfeiture fund, the financial solvency of the fund has improved to the point where it is no longer necessary to continue deferring equitable sharing patients, uh, payments, spokesman Peter J. Carr said in an email Monday. While he didn't specifically specify exactly where the new funding came from, Carr noted that the program is partly funded by the cash and other property seized under the program. The Asset Forfeiture Funds Act in many ways acts uh, is like a revolving fund. He explained in a follow-up email, forfeited proceeds are being deposited throughout the year to replenish the funds that are simultaneously flowing out of the asset forfeiture fund to pay for approved agency expenses. He noted that when the Justice Department announced the suspension in December, it remained very eager to resume payments as soon as it is fiscally feasible to do so. 
asset forfeiture is a contentious practice that lets police seize and keep cash and properties from people who are never <clears throat> convicted of wrongdoing. Let me repeat that. Asset forfeiture is a contentious practice that lets pe police seize and keep cash and property from people who are never convicted of wrongdoing. And in many cases, never even charged. Studies have found that use of the practice has exploded in recent years, prompting concern that in some cases, police are motivated more by profit and less by justice. A wide-ranging Washington Post investigation in 2014 found that police have seized $2.5 billion in cash alone, without warrants, without indictments, since 2001. In response, the Attorney General Eric Holder, then Attorney General Eric Holder, announced new restrictions on some federal asset forfeiture practices. These restrictions were meant to limit the ability of the state and local law enforcement officials to choose more lenient federal forfeiture guidelines over state law. But critics say the reforms don't go far enough and still leave discretion for local authorities to choose more permissive federal laws by acting as part of a joint task force with federal authority. Asset forfeiture is growing fast. In 2014, for instance, the federal authority seized more than $5 billion in assets. That's more than the value of assets lost in every single burglary that year. Gentlemen? Revenue generators. That's the ones that don't, uh, you know, they don't have to really, I guess the asset forfeiture is everything. I mean, like street crime bus, highway, you know, patrol pullovers, uh, DUIs. I mean, I just every kind of imaginable interaction with, uh, with law enforcement that a person could have. I mean, probably jaywalking, uh, what was it? Uh, Michael Brown uh, was was uh, stopped by the cop because of improper use of of the lane or something because they were walking down the middle of the street. So I mean, any kind of interaction that you might initiate by even not making contact, uh, eye contact with them rather, is a reason for them to do what we saw in New York. They did uh, two and a half million times with the stop, question, and frisk. When they finally went ahead and ruled that out. Then they realize how many millions of people, you know, out of that, that there was nothing they ever did that was wrong. They weren't even arrested or charged, or when they were charged, it was a real small percentage that was ever convicted of anything. So imagine the money that they generate in that in that space. So I'm going to share this video on Facebook page, uh, New Abolitionist Radio, and I'm also share it to the group Move uh, to Abolish 21st Century Slavery on Facebook. And uh, I was flipping through the television channels the other day, and I came across this documentary uh, on Fusion uh, Television Channel, or not television, cable, Ferguson, a report from Occupied Territory. I couldn't even watch all of it because I was getting so angry and I was just imagining, you know, if the police, the county police, the little city police in the little towns where I live in, this could easily be a Ferguson. And I, I could just imagine how I would feel being that I've been in a war zone and and worried about getting killed or, you know, any kind of enemy contact and what have you. And that's how I, I, I mean, I felt. PTSD, man. I bet them people got PTSD. 
man, if you yeah. look at that, that um, you know, and it was in the uh, Department of Justice Ferguson report that uh, we did extensive, you know, um, uh, reporting on it after we analyzed it and broke it down, even inspired a segment that we'll bring back, but America is Ferguson, you know, inspired that. I mean, if you watch that documentary, it will make you angry. You know, they out there in the street talking. It's only about an hour long and how, you know, they were talking about you would get picked up for some kind of warrant or something uh, generated in one town, put you in that jail. Then the next thing, you know, you know, uh, uh, you get sh your family come and pay to bond you out. But now they didn't transfer you to the other jail. Y'all remember that story? We were sharing that. Well, you know, you get to see the people that suffered that uh, in this uh, um, documentary. Only an hour long. Ferguson, a report from Occupied Territory uh, produced by uh, Fusion. So I just uh, shared that on our new abolitionist Facebook page, and I'm going to share it to uh, our group, uh, Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery. But that's all this right is. It, it plays out every day. Yep. And this we see in one of the motivations for it, obviously, is just yeah. the revenue. Slavery. Cap, they're using the human capital. What you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote about his capital, and what happened. Right. You know, they are treated as capital. If I lock up, just like Thomas Jefferson came up with the formula, if I have this many African enslaved babies born on my plantation, my wealth increased. You know, uh, I think four or five percent uh, annually. You know, and so they looking at it. Well, if I lock up each Negro in these towns, you know, about three times a year, this is how much money I could generate, you know. Man. Capital is a numbers man. game. They playing a numbers game, you know. And, and um, yeah, I'm talking about Ferguson, but, I mean, it's going on in New York. Remember, they went on strike, and they, you know, was talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, how much money they weren't generating for the city for that week. I think it was something like a million dollars or something. I, Ten I don't, million dollars. Huh? Was it? Ten million, yeah. In one Ten week, million the whole week? court system, the judges, the bailiffs, the clerks, the people that work all through the courts, the cops, all kind of people wasn't getting their money. So, man. These seizures. These asset seizures uh, laws are used all across America. Florida, it's infamous for them, where they would stop people on highways going in and out of Florida and just seize their money and their property and uh, just claim that they might be transporting drugs. And as you know, as we just stated, you don't have to be charged with anything. You don't have to be convicted with anything. All you have to do is have a cop stop you and take your stuff and say you might be responsible for trafficking. That's all you need. And they get to keep it, and you don't get it back. And then they sell it where they made over $5 billion just in 2014 alone from selling the property that they take from people. That is a... Extortion, for one thing, at the very least, and it's a criminal act uh, completely. To know that it's endorsed by the federal government lets us know what side of this fence the federal government is on. Hmm. You know, we well, can take it even further with the next story, too. Yeah, let's go ahead and go into our uh, first break and um, break. follow it up. All right, well, 
we're gonna when we come back, we're gonna talk about New York City and what they're doing with their fines. In the meantime, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, Johanna Nelaya on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages. I started in slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflected for 200 years ships sailed carrying fraudulent slave non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, it's actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Become the drum! This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our next story coming up, uh, Brother Johanan is going to handle us. New York City raked in a record $1.9 billion in fines just for 2015 alone. Now, we often tell you about innocent people being railroaded into prisons, people being extorted, like we just showed you, with the asset seizure, forfeiture uh, laws that have now come back into play, which were taken away in December. But here's another example of how they get you. And remember, in each of these cases, if you don't pay the fine or if something goes wrong, you end up in prison. So, uh, Honor? Yeah, like you said uh, before the break, I mean, it just ties right in what we just got through talking about. You know, in another case with asset forfeiture, how they just taking it away from people and whatnot. So it's just a continuing theme. And that's what I hit on when I commented on that story is New York City with the Stop Question and Frisk program. So with the expansive powers of the police, they go from, you know, to stop, question, and frisk and just go right on into every other aspect of how they shake people down for the money. So uh, this is a New York Daily News says uh, the city raked in a whopping $1.9 billion in fines and fees last year, a 13.3% jump over the last four years. Um, so city controller, Scott Stringer, the one that has to pay these payouts for all the, uh, the the 20 folks so far that's been set free uh, with Ken Thompson's Conviction Integrity Unit. They all, with their settlements that they have to get, Stringer's the one that literally pulls the strings on the money. So you see what he's collecting and what he's willing to keep that in mind for what he's willing to give to people that they've stolen, you know, 30, 40 years of their lives or what have you. So these are the numbers. Stringer uh, said the city took in $957 million in fines in the 2015 fiscal year. A 7.5 jump, a 7.5% jump from the year before and 12% more than 2012. Fees amounted to $974 million, increasing 14% since 2012. I mean, they got that money out of people's pockets. That's, you know, all it is to it. Some of the changes were driven by Mayor de Blasio's policies. Fines against reckless drivers have spiked under the, the new uh, Vision, uh, or Vision Zero initiative, while fines against restaurants and small businesses have fallen. Hmm. The biggest source of cash has stayed the same. Parking tickets, which brought in $565 million, or 59% of the total fines, and have grown 10.3% since 2012. So you hear these numbers. I mean, just ridiculous numbers. Half of a, half of a billion dollars just in traffic or in uh, parking tickets. Traffic camera fines jumped 41%. 
over the last four years to 77 million, driven by a 15 fold increase in speed cameras that catch lead footed drivers in school zones, and the 117% increase in bus lane camera violations. Red light camera violations after falling for the previous two years increased 6.9% to 29 million. Camera revenue is expected to keep growing in the coming years, with the city planning to put 100 more speed cameras and install 100 new bus lane cameras. Wow. So y'all get the basic idea here of what, I mean, these numbers are just cartoonish. Wow. So I'll put the link on the uh, new abolitions page. I dropped it up there already. Okay. Right on. Wow. Well, I mean, what do you think of those of those numbers? Does that even seem, does any of that seem organic to either one of you? I mean, does that seem like that's what a society I mean, if you were looking at what they're doing here as just the results of one company's efforts to increase their profit margin, they'd be doing a hell of a damn good job. And that's right. exactly what it is. It is an, uh, a corporate structure trying to increase its profit margin, and it's doing so to the tune of 15% right now. And we're talking huge numbers, $577 million, a half a, more than a half a billion dollars, as you said. And now they're looking to install more cameras so they can do what? Increase their revenue. Just right. keep increasing it. It's going to probably possibly double. If they said they had 117 uh, cameras, I think, in, uh, that they already collected the money off of that they got now. So if they had another 100, I mean, it would stand a reason that that would Twofold the money, wouldn't it? That's what they're looking at. Um, and imagine what it'll be like in ten years. In ten Ooh. years, they'll be probably making five billion or three billion dollars a year just on fines alone uh, and tickets. And again, I'd like to point out that if you don't pay these fines, which is what happens in many cases where people simply can't afford it, guess where you end up? Right. In a jailhouse. And then from the jailhouse, you get hit with. Uh, felony charges that they try to place on you and stack on you, and then eventually you end up in prison. So you better have their money or else. And this is one of the ways that our prison population has grown and our jail population has grown. It's why we have 13 million people going to our jails every year. Cycling through. Right, like a human meat grinder and all over what? So these uh, some racist cops out there can go and start taking a bunch of blacks and Hispanics to uh, fill their quotas that we know they have, that cops had admitted there's a quota for the New York Police Department. And we've even reported here where in uh, at least one instance, uh, the top cop uh, told his police force in New York that they better get their happy behinds back out there issuing tickets because they were costing the city $10 million a week in revenue. Thomas Jefferson's formula, man, for slavery. It's that simple. It's not really hard to understand when you get to the root of the problem and you study the people who perfected the system and, and think like how they was thinking and whatnot. But I, I mean, it, it, it is all boils down to what? Money. Money. So uh, there's a, not a whole lot of money being generated by solving rape cases. You know what I'm saying? It's not really nope. a whole lot of money. Uh, in stopping racist white terrorists, you know, they want to be white supremacists. It's, it's just no money in that, man. So, you know, we will 
just focus on the working class and the poor people and we'll we'll extract you know we'll do a great wealth transfer you know basically and and if need be you know generate money off their bodies how many times we have to talk about you know i wanted that to be brought up that'll be a great question to be asked at the new york debate that between hillary clinton and bernie sanders you know uh, have that inserted into the questions do you know in the in the state of new york it costs how much uh money to incarcerate a child $353,000 a year per mm-hmm. child yeah and i don't recall hillary clinton talking too much about that when she was senator out of new york so yeah that'd That's be right. a good question to ask you know you just think about the total number we're talking about new york alone is $2 billion in fines and fees. There's 50 states here. And those 50 states probably generate $50 billion a year in just tickets and fines. Hmm. In, fact, so, in fact, if I may, uh, I don't recall Hillary Clinton saying anything when the lawsuit Floyd versus, you know, the city of New York or the NYPD in the class action stopped and frisked law. Did y'all, do y'all recall Hillary Clinton saying anything? Nothing that I know of. Never a word. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure my memory wasn't failing me. Man, imagine the good you could do with $50 billion a year. The changes in this country. You could end poverty, end homelessness, just for what they're taking from people in tickets and fines. And, you know, we, we know that this is based on attacking the poor and incarcerating the poor. Imagine if instead of paying a fine, you had to do community service. There would be no dirty parks, no dirty streets throughout this entire country. Hmm. Nah. They want to get the money. Well, That's just, how it is too. just so the listeners know, if you want to call in, we, uh, we, we're not too tight tonight. <laughs> if you want to call in, the number is one six four one seven one five three six six zero extension 5 49032 pound. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. We love it when our listeners chime in. Anything else on that story, gentlemen? No, we're going to the uh, thousand small jails. Yeah, yeah, we're going to go to the thousand small jails. Uh, I don't know if Scotty feels like doing one. Scotty, you want to cover that one? Actually, uh, if y'all can handle that, because I'm working on some post-production uh, from earlier programs, so I'll chime in okay. with the team. All right, we got this covered, no problem at all. Um, this particular one comes out of the Atlantic, uh, and it says the rise of 1,000 small jails, and this new analysis shows that the growth in the jail population is happening in unexpected places. Now, just to remind you, we reported here on what they call tiny jail, uh, a tiny courthouses throughout America in these small towns that are using mass incarceration as a way to fuel their coffers and their government funding. Um, And we also have reported on here that most of the population increases in the prisons are happening throughout small communities who need sending these people to prison for profit. Now, this one says some jails are notorious. Think New York City, Rikers Island, or the Los Angeles County Men's Central Jail. 
News stories about overcrowding, violence, and deplorable conditions fuel ongoing public debate about the nation's two largest jail systems and capture the public's imagination about just what jail looks like. But it turns out our urban jails are in decline. There is even a movement to close the jail in New York City. Los Angeles is already tearing down its largest jail and building a smaller one. And it is raw. Hold on for a second. Before I continue with that part of the story, I do remember recently about California approving a $2 billion jail construction. So I don't know if they're aware of that, but that's what I'm understanding. Now, back to the story. It says uh, Los Angeles is already tearing down its largest jail and building a smaller one. And it's rural America that represents the true picture of U.S. jails today. That's because growth in the jail population is not driven by the largest counties. It has taken root in a thousand very small ones across the United States. Of course, it wasn't always like this. The nation's very small counties once had less than half as many people in jail as New York City and Los Angeles combined. Now, it is the very small counties that have doubled the combined jail population of the two cities. Originally, wow, that's a big change, man. Original, original analysis of the Barrett Institute's online jail population tool shows that jails have grown the most in small counties, not large ones. In the last de decade, the outsized jail growth in very small counties has only continued, but jail populations in large, larger counties have actually begun to decline. To illustrate this, I conducted an additional analysis to compare two groups of counties, each with a population of 18.6 million. The first group, Los Angeles County in New York City, which have a combined resident population of 18.6 million in 2014, are also the largest and perhaps most notorious jail jurisdictions in the United States. The second group, 1,003 very small counties, each with between 10,000 and 30,000 residents in 2014, and also with a combined resident population total of 18.6 million. Around one-third of all U.S. counties fall into the 10,000 to 30,000 category. Each group holds 6% of the total U.S. population and has grown at nearly the same rate since 1970. Of course, there are differences between the two groups. The growth of mass incarceration in local jails is one key difference. From the 1970s to the present, New York City and L.A. combined jail population grew 30 percent, from 23,000 to 30,000 people on any given day. This outpaces the city's residents' population growth of 25 percent. In contrast, in the very small counties, jails populations started out much smaller. For example, Gonzales County, Texas, with 20,000 residents between San Antonio and Houston, had two people in jail in 1970. But very small counties grew far more. The jail population in these very small counties grew sixfold from the 1970s to the present, from 9,000 to 62,000, and now holds double the amount of people behind bars as New York City and L.A. Gonzalez County had 87 people in jail in 2013 for a jail incarceration rate twice the national average, or Marion County, Tennessee, with 28,000 residents outside of Chattanooga, had only eight people in jail in 1970 and now has 131 in 2013. You can read the rest of this story on New Abolitionist Radio. They break it down in further. I think we got through much of the meat of it here. Gentlemen, any comments? 
Man, it's the same story in every city that, you know, we're going to report on it. I mean, Ferguson is America has been a revolutionary segment that, you know, came from the heart of this stop along the abolitionist road, you know. I mean, this is this is the house that, you know, Scotty and yourself and, and myself are all contributing to helping to build. And, I mean, that idea came from this program and just opened up a much wider national discussion about the pervasiveness of this very type of thing. And Ferguson really was ground zero of, you know, with everything that we knew and had already shared on this program for all those years. With Michael Brown's death and the explosion that came out of Ferguson, that investigation proved that the whole nation is, is in the same situation. I just think that's very powerful, you know, what that what the ripple effect was. And you see from every city that we report on on this on this program, it's, it's the same slavery, as Scotty has been saying, slavery. They've got a few more stats in here that might even make it clearer. Uh, they say that another meaningful difference in di- is in diversity. The combined population of New York City and Los Angeles is 70% people of color. And the very small counties are about 80% non-Hispanic whites. And uh, they go on further to say to understand the full impact of mass incarceration at the local level, you got to understand how it affects people of color. And compared to very small counties, for more pe- far more people of color live in New York City and L.A. County. One might expect New York City and L.A. to have more people of color in jail, but they don't. Very small counties have more people of color behind bars on any given day than New York City or L.A. Listen, I live in one of those um, communities that's uh, 80% plus white and what have you. And this county has been described as the meth capital of the world, you know. And recently, uh, CEO Obama has been coming out. They came up with a billion dollars, I think, for a program to to address, you know, uh, heroin overdoses and whatnot. And he was saying that, you know, using language to shift the focus from arrest. And see, but we're talking about this is the this is this is slavery. Racism has its roots in slavery with the slave codes. While they were implementing the slave codes, they were also stripping blacks of their rights and, and, you know, free blacks of their rights and what have you. And so uh, that's all we're talking about. But here in this white county, okay, the NAACP, you know, the local chapter shared something. And this is I'm going to read it to you. The opiate crisis in Gastonia community response hosted by Gastonia City Councilman Robert Kellogg. Uh, Join me and other guests for an educational evening with local leaders as they share valuable information on the opiate crisis in Gastonia. In addition, there will be time for questions and answers at the end of the presentation. And I won't, uh, uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to attend uh, because I'll be, you know, tied to, you know, broadcasting duties uh, tomorrow during that time. Uh, uh, For those in Gaston County, North Carolina, it's going to be at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, Gaston County Police and and, all. But I want to go so badly. I, I, I wish I could send in a videotape thing. Maybe I'll email it to this councilman, but I don't live in his jurisdiction. But I do live in this county, and it is a county jail. See, they're not talking about expanding any jails 
here and in these rural uh predominantly white community now they want to address this out of control opiate crisis that they're calling it but i don't even know if meth is an opiate and this is called the meth capital of north carolina but you know stark stark uh difference in response from the federal government and down to the local level as you can see uh as others have pointed out when the crack epidemic you know, hit when Ronald Reagan, the CIA, and and Colonel Oliver North, and and you know the Mexican drug cartels or Colombia, wherever they was getting the drugs from, you know, uh, and and flooding. They, oh no, we have we have people say a generation. It's more than a generation. I mean, it's ongoing. There are people still right. getting arrested for it. If you get stopped in Charlotte, right. North Carolina, with uh, with ten dollars worth of crack rock on your on on your person, and they find it, you going to jail. You going to jail, and you're gonna be prosecuted, and you going to prison. But out here where I live, with all these white people, where I just read how they trying to jail. Oh, it's a it's like that's why I voted for Ron Paul in 2008, a doctor who said this is a health crisis. He said that in the Republican debates. You know, that's all I needed to hear. He said he would eliminate the DEA by executive order. So don't talk to me about Republicans is not allowing Obama to do this or do that. It ain't about a Republican or a Democrat. It's about a politician and what you're doing. Okay, so so we see the start responses. And so if I lived in those and I want to go so I can preach the message of abolitionism, number one. No, I don't want to see all these white people get locked up and, and all that. I want them to get help because they need help or, or other diversionary methods. But it shouldn't be illegal, period. Just leave these, leave these people alone. Leave them alone and stop trying to generate. But, but they ain't. I mean, the jail does stay full now. Don't get me mistaken about that. But they ain't talking about expanding it or building new ones and, and all of that. No, they treating right. it as a health crisis. And that's not what's happening in places like, you know, where um, uh, non-white people, black and, and Hispanic, you know, uh, right. uh, people live. The value is still the same value. Just like we talk about with slavery, the thread that's in it through, of slavery through and through. The, the I mean, it's down to the literal value of the of the persons. You know, again, uh, to say to an extent it's not about race, it just so happens that the black people and the brown people are more valuable as slaves, as chattel. You can, ex you can justify financing to get expansion of your plantations. You can get your plantation plots expanded to gain more acreage, get more sophisticated means. I mean, it's making an investment in your slave operation just like it would have been in 1800s. You go into the bank and you're asking for money. That's why we see the investment side of what the GEO group is doing, the investment side of what CCA is doing and why they're classifying themselves as real estate investment trusts and getting different types of tax subsidies and coverages and whatnot, and they're really protecting that money, and they're able to gamble and build in-house new slave plantations. They can finance their own plantation projects, build them themselves, add their slaves to it, bring in the ones that get the most money and stay the most generating revenue when they do the slave work on the backside. I mean, it's exactly the same game planning other than sitting up there mating the folks. I mean, I guess that's one part of it. They don't actually just mate, you know, people for slavery, but they do basically on the sociology, you know, deeper level. We know there's other things, the programmings and all this, but whatever. It's just a trip, man. The same job is hands-on, the same as it was 
you know, 150, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, the same type of psychology. They do, they do uh, manufacture them in places where they call million-dollar blocks. Right. Uh, over police and generationally, people end up in these jails. Uh, and, you know, the, the crime rates are just through the roof. And uh, as I've said before, it's not because of crime is so high. It's because you got too damn many cops with quotas. And every time you put another cop out there and tell him he got to arrest 17 people a month or something, whatever it may be, he's going to do that if that's his quota. And that will make it seem like there's a huge crime rate going on when, in fact, it's not. It's a huge collection going on of people hmm. in these million-dollar blocks. And you mentioned earlier... Uh, the relationship of the uh, the birth of the Ferguson is America series uh, in relationship with this story. Just recently, I applied for a foundation grant uh, in order to finish the America is Ferguson series on a much larger scale. And also the video I released today, the incarceration nation in black and white, is really the culmination of that knowledge. I took everything I learned from that uh, study that we did, America is Ferguson, and narrowed it down into the most important information I could possibly give a person to open their eyes and mind. And that's why I say it's very important that you look at this video, The Incarceration Nation in Black and White, so you can see for yourself what it is that's going on in America state by state. A lot of these numbers are uh, just numbers for the national average, which are misleading. When you start looking at what's happening state by state, you start seeing a clearer picture of the truth, where Vermont is arresting 12 blacks, every one white, uh, where Washington, D.C. arrests 19 blacks, for every one white. And you'll see that across the board, state by state, one white, 10 blacks, five blacks, 19 blacks, 12 blacks, every state. We under it. We up under it. That's why we got to get this knowledge out here, get the word to people. Uh, what you doing with that series, Max? I mean, what you always do, man. It's just, it's it's just amazing what you're able to to put together with these series and and the research overall, just for this program and that whole. I mean, just the force driving that America's Ferguson series. Yeah, we all you know came together, and came up with the idea, and established some of the first you know weeks or whatever, and did our own thing and. For a while, I think you and I were like alternating, but it just it's just too much. You took it over and just ran that like a champ. So, I mean, I I really had to, you know, take my abolitionist hat off to you, man, because week by week you just continue to blow my mind and I'm right in the same study as you are. And like, so, I mean, what was enlightened about this system? I mean, basically, we just wrote the book on this program. You can go through these sit through these episodes like an encyclopedia series and get each state-by-state state breakdown and at any given time completely justify your argument that slavery is alive and well in this country from any state you live in in this country. I don't think there's any other source resource out there that could so succinctly teach you to justify the slavery argument just by picking the state you live in, listening to the report that was brought on this program. I mean, that's a gift right there to society that, you know, until we abolish slavery, that you have to match that gift. Indeed, brother. Uh, as an artist, that was what I decided to do, to take all my skills that I've used as an artist over the years and bring them to bear against slavery. And uh, we've had some success with that, and hopefully people will watch our most recent video and share it with others, because it's something that needs to be discussed. 
this is the type of video, it's only 12 and a half minutes long, where you gather together 10, 15 people from your community, watch it, and then talk about it. Because what you're seeing is the truth, the unfiltered truth. And you need to know it, and you need to discuss it amongst yourself. It can even be a teaching tool in schools to help the children understand what it is they're facing and what they need to do once they come into adulthood to, to be able to manage this and fight it. Hopefully, we'll beat it down before my grandchildren become adults. But all we can do is say that we're carrying the torch until it happens. Right well, on, right on. We're coming up on our next break. And when we come back from the break, uh, we're going to talk about this article that we got, which Christopher Irvin shared uh, out of Baltimore regarding the Human Trafficking Center. It did my, did my heart a lot of good to hear them say this because, you know, we've talked about uh, organizations like that on this program often and why it is they don't recognize what's happening in the United States of America as legalized slavery while fighting slavery in third world countries. And I'm appreciative that at least one has come to the conclusion, and let's hope that that spreads out over and over again. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on blacktalkradionetwork.com, a black-owned, black-operated, unfiltered black voice radio platform. We'll be right back after these messages. sick and tired of this bullshit, this country where one minority group dominates and dictates what the majority is supposed to be doing. I don't think that's the way it works. And that minority group, they don't do anything productive for this country. Well, look, I'm not going to say that they're, they're Except for us. the NBA. And if it wasn't for the NBA, Joe, like I always say, our country would have the world's tallest garbage man. Okay? Thank God for the NBA. Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, I did want to give a shout out to my sister BJ Janice Graham, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, who allowed me to come on and speak with her audience and her esteemed guests, uh, including Yvette Carnell and Nina Turner, uh, the spokesperson for the Sanders campaign. So big shout out to her. If you haven't heard that interview, I'll provide the link for it shortly so you can check it out. It was very powerful indeed. Um, our next story coming up is, as I said, something we consider, or I consider a victory. I think my co-hosts will agree with me. Brother Johanna, you want to pull that link up and cover this one? Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I, had a I had to. I had to. At the mute on. Uh, the Human Trafficking Center? Yes, sir. Uh, the constitutional loophole allows forced labor in the U.S. from the Human Trafficking Center, yes. Yeah, so uh, again, this is uh, just, like you said, just continued uh, 
backing up everything that we keep saying. So I'm thankful for this too. Recently, many prominent anti-trafficking organizations allowed the passage of a bill closing a loophole that had allowed the uh, import of goods produced by forced labor. None of them noted the irony that the U.S. Constitution allows for such goods to to be produced, sold, and consumed within its borders. This hypocrisy is significant as the U.S. incarcerates more of its own people than any other nation in the world, exposing them to forced commercial labor within the state and federal penitentiaries while banning the import of goods produced by convict labor abroad. So you just heard the financial incentive explained in that sentence right there. That's the loophole in the 13th. What it's doing is giving them commercial labor within the states and within the federal penitentiary. So within our borders, we do have commercial labor. So don't believe the... See, the media spin is that, there's, that we sent all the jobs away. And the media does not follow it beyond that point. We've already acquiesced that in America with NAFTA, what we did, we did push all the jobs out, and that was a visual. That was the the smoke and mirrors. What do they say? Throw the rock and hide your hand. See, they threw the rock like we're all a bunch of little Pavlovian dogs like we are. So they threw the rock. Look, the jobs just left. Look, boy. And you know how the dog look and run. He might run all 50 yards ahead looking for the ball, cause, but you didn't throw the ball. That's what they did. They threw the jobs off the, to the south, to Mexico. And that's what you saw. But then they brought, they really had the jobs here in the prisons the whole time. And you, you didn't see. They had the jobs here the whole time. So this is just telling you in a sentence. They have commercial labor here. Those jobs that you thought are gone, they're here in the states and federal penitentiaries. But that also bans the import of goods that are produced by convict labor from anywhere else. So you can't even compete by law with us with our slave trade. It's not even legal. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. That's just, I mean, it's just, wow. I mean, if you don't see slavery and accept what we're talking about and get behind this fight, you are passively being violent to the rest of us. You're being passive to the law that is in the land that increases the chance that you have a financial incentive to be enslaved is a, t is a terrorist threat to you. So by being passive to it, you're being aggressive towards me. You must think I want to go to prison because all these odds that the law is putting against us and you act like you don't care. Thirteenth Amendment reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except for punishment of a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States nor any place subject to their jurisdiction. While this amendment allows for forced labor of prisoners, more recent federal law requires it. According to the federal trafficking legislation, obtaining a person by force for the purpose of involuntary servitude is labor trafficking, except for prisoners. Slaves. The glaring exception to the abolition of involuntary servitude has led to one company that earned $553 million in 2013 by using the labor of over 20,000 convicts according to its own numbers. Established slave plantations that are generating revenue, just like this 1835 or 1715 instead of 2015. This is the same exact thing. You could put the template up to the light of these two things and they're going to match because it's the same. Slavery then and slavery now, they got plantations of people that they put through labor for free or slave wage. And they're generating revenue, 501 company made $553 million. So again, we just talked about a billion dollars made in parking tickets. Two billion. Two billion in New York. Yeah. 
in a, uh, 900, <clears throat> excuse me, 900 and something million of that, or 555 million of the of 2 billion was off of straight up parking tickets. Then off a of 100 cameras they had, that generated however many millions, and this and that, and da da da, whatever. And now we're on the plantation side. See, that's the slave catcher side. We opened with the slave catcher side. But now we're on the plantation side. And on the plantation side, they got all of the slaves caught up in the pens, literally, the pen, and they generate $553 million. So you see the profitability of this going up the scale. But it's legal by what we just read to you. So I, I guess uh, the link is probably on the page, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So definitely, I mean, what do y'all see here? Well, there's some powerful quotes. You just gave one of them. Uh, there was another one where they mentioned in prison labor today and in Colorado, uh, and they mentioned Unicorn, which is a billion-dollar-a-year industry owned by the United States of America Incorporated. And Unicorn does nothing but provide prison slave labor and services and goods. And they said in 1934, federal prison industries publicly traded under the name Unicorn began a federal inmate worker program for private prisons ostensibly in the effort to reduce recidivism. This claim has not been substantiated by methodologically rigorous studies. Today, many everyday products are manufactured in prisons, and a number of services are performed by inmates. Inmates manufacture furniture, law enforcement equipment, and license plates. Sprint and Verizon outsource telecommunication jobs to call centers and prisons. In 2013, Colorado Corrections Industry made $65 million profit from its inmate-run fishery, vineyard, and goat farm. That's, these are just like one industry. We mentioned two so far. I actually mentioned three, if you count Unicorn. So we've mentioned three where they're making annual profits of $65 million, $980 million, $570 million. These are people that are being exploited, and they're earning from 0 0.23 cents an hour to $1.15 an hour. Or in the cases, I believe, like in California, where they have the firefighters, prisoners fighting forest fires at $2 a day. Well, in Boston, uh, where they had them shoveling the snow and clearing the tracks for the subways and all of that, they brought them out, and I think they gave them something the same, like $2 a day or something. And that was a job that was, I think it started at $30 an hour when they were hiring citizens before they went ahead and outsourced that to the insource to the prison slaves in the state prison, brought them down and had them shoveling the city streets. That was a municipal paying job that they opened up to pretty much anybody in the city because they had a for real blizzard. So these people came straight out of prison instead of being like Joe Blow that might have a coat and might have boots because the snow is, you know, like literally up to your chest. And they're paying you $30 an hour to go clear that up. But instead of doing that, no, wait a minute. We just go get these state prisoners that just might have a jacket and some flat, some flip-flops or something. And they don't have anybody, whatever. And they can make $2 a day for doing the same thing. So they took the jobs again. And look at the inhumanity of doing that to people. There's no case that's in, that, in court behind that. There's nobody that's going to lose their job or face criminal time for that. They follow the rules of slavery. Well, I definitely want to say thank you to the Human Trafficking Center 
And uh, this is no small thing. The Human Trafficking Center is, is a major. Let me just read uh, who they are. The Human Trafficking Center housed in the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies is the only two-year graduate-level professional training degree in human trafficking in the United States. One way graduate students contribute to the study of human trafficking is by publishing research-based material. The HTC was founded in 2002 to apply sound research and reliable mythology to the field of human trafficking research and advocacy. Founded in 1964, the year I was born, the Joseph Corbett School of International Studies is one of the world's leading schools for the study of international relations. The school offers degree programs in international affairs and is named in honor of its founder and first dean, Joseph Corbett. So, Corbett, so this, this is big. And I'm hoping that other organizations like nslavery.org follow suit, suit and recognize that we are dealing with modern-day slavery and human trafficking right here in the United States. You don't need to go overseas to find slavery. You can walk down the street to your closest jail or prison and see it with your own eyes. I want to point out one last part, uh, thing there, Max, that just kind of became clear to me uh, when I read that sentence again about how the 13th Amendment exception is what allows for commercial labor, like middle-wage, middle-class jobs. Mm -hmm. That's all that is. That You're saying all the middle-class jobs are allowed commercial labor within the state and federal penitentiaries, while, it also, while this law that we have on the books also bans the import of goods that are produced by convicts. It doesn't say by international slave labor. See, that's another aspect of when people say, like we had the announcement from Anonymous, where for whatever reason they piped up about slavery and I guess tried to kind of, I guess, uh, kind of sun the, the uh, abolitionist movement a little kind of, I don't know, was that, did you feel like that was a slight? Did you see that where they put out their little poster saying that slavery and, you know, talk, basically saying slavery was international labor? Uh, they said today's modern slaves are not in chains, they're in debt. And yes, I do feel like that was a counter-abolitionist campaign and I don't understand why Anonymous would feel the need to try to tell people that we don't have slaves in chains and in cages today when there's so many millions that they're very familiar with who are in prisons and going in and out of these jails for profit. This is nothing that is people of the United States are not unfamiliar with now. Everyone in this country pretty much knows that prison for profit is occurring. So for Anonymous to come out and start telling us how we don't have slaves in chains and we don't have slaves in cages is contradictory to what we're telling people, and I don't understand why they feel it necessary to do something like this. Well, I think right. it's important to remember, being that you know we all operate social media accounts, you know that could be the views of an individual, and you know anonymous. Uh, who can say how large they are? Uh, really, it could be ten guys on in there. It could be you know a million hackers. I really don't know. Uh, I can't tell you that, but you know, I I don't think that we should uh, that we should. I think we should take that into account. You know that an individual could have posted that, and but it's important to you know uh, point out to them, you know that this is slavery. You know we're still doing it, and other people still coming along. So maybe that person just don't know, and they did it out well, of ignorance. Let's hope if that person is listening. The next time you hear a story about women 
giving labor in labor in prison in shackles while they give babies, then uh, you might want to reconsider what it is you just put right. out. Right, and, and I mean that goes back to what we were talking about that video earlier of the guy running for president for the Humane Party is the name of it, you know, the Humane Party, and he comparing, you know, uh, saying that animals are being enslaved now and that the 13th Amendment ended slavery in all forms for human beings, and so this is Abolitionist Day and now trying to tie in, you know, and and not no slight to the ab, to the animal rights people out there. There are political prisoners who, you know, have went to prisons for setting animals free from these corporate places where they're being experimented on or harvested for their fur and stuff. So no slight to you there, but I mean, just to come out your mouth with you know false information about the Thirteenth Amendment makes everything else you say suspect. Right, right. If you're supposed supposedly doing research on so many things, you just don't casually say things like that, especially when you can't prove it. And the and the information shows the exact opposite. But then again, as you said, it could be an individual, and we have a lot of ignorant individuals in this country today. Uh, most of them fall under the "we're voting for Trump" category. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, voting for either one of them. I mean, to, or Clinton. To, yeah, yeah, for the for the the uh, actual things that have happened. I mean, sure, you could speculate about any person about what they might do, but we know cold in stone on tape. I mean, Clinton is owner is being basically investigated by the federal government. Why? I mean, how is that not comical to the whole planet? We got to do this a straight up reality TV uh, person, and we got a, a candidate that's been tied to political scandals since she ever even got in, whether it was her personally or her suspected involvement or whatever. It's the whole time just been scandalous and what have you. And then when you get into being in a run and you are actively being investigated every week is new revelations from the investigation into your conduct in your last job. Like how is that? Who could go apply for a job somewhere and you being investigated by your last job for the way you, you know, she's going for president. She's going for president. Her last job is investigating her because she did some dirty, illegal stuff. You know, one of the things that I've learned to do over the years is to recognize patterns and aberrations of patterns. And just recently, uh, I've seen a lot of people who are starting to come out and explain why it is they're voting for Hillary Clinton. I, uh, Clinton. I've read maybe a dozen of them so far. I don't think it's a coincidence that they all came out all of a sudden. I think this is a concentrated effort. But the common denominator in all of these why I'm voting for Hillary Clinton letters that seem to come out throughout the social media tend to completely uh, omit anything she had to do with criminal justice. They don't mention anything about the 1994 crime bill. There's nothing about super predators. None of that comes into their worldview or political view of why they're voting for Hillary Clinton. And to me, that says to us clearly, we don't give a damn about you, your people who went to prison, your families who were destroyed, the prison for profit industry, uh, the launch of Wackenhut Corrections Company in 1994. None of that matters to us. That's your problem. You deal with it. That's what I'm getting from them. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's wild. It's wild. We, 
we're uh, we got to fight back. We got to get this knowledge out here, man, and get the. I mean, what we doing, fellas? I just I, sometimes I feel like being on here, like we in the locker room and just you know getting pumped, you know pumped up for the for the fight to go back out here and, and push this information out and just push the spirit out of getting this enlightenment out here and getting people to know and getting. I mean, just even. On a vibrational level, man, if I could just be really honest about myself as a person, I don't, you know, hold back from that. I, I really feel like just even the frequencies that we speak on and think on on this is, is contributing to the social cognitive. Like people are picking up what's going on because it's just we just emanating this power of the truth about what's going on. People, you got to see how prevalent this is. We've, we've got to continue to get people awakened to what's happening, man. I mean, yeah, there's very few aspects of our social life that this doesn't you know, involve. Uh, we were right. talking earlier about the small prisons, small jails, where they had two people in jail in the 70s, and now they got 131 or 141. Just multiply that time every county across America, and you'll see how these little drops of injustice become a storm of institutional racism. Makes good money. Indeed, man. Well, you know, for a change, we got a lot of stories that we had to pick from, but we didn't. We, we stuck to just a few today. And we saved enough time in case anybody wants to call in and add their voice to the conversation. So, again, we invite you to call in and be a part of the conversation. The number is one six four one seven one five three six six zero. extension 49032-POUND. If you're already on the conference line, just press star six and one to queue up and uh, tell us what you want to tell us or ask whatever questions you want to ask. We're here for a national discussion about this. Right. Come on out with it. Whatever it is, it's on your mind. What they say, say it with your chest. It's something on your mind. And I'm not just talking to the people that we're trying to convince and the people that, that love us and follow us and spread the word. I'm talking to the to the people that hate us, too. Say what you want to say. I mean, we, we're we here every week for years. Come on out with it. If you just believe that we're so crazy or you can't follow it, I mean, where are the people that's going to come here? We have to go out and go find people to try to bring them in here to justify their case or their disbelief. So you can call in, too. I'm sure you're sitting here hating what you're hearing. It's yeah, just don't believe it. We're crazy. Yeah. Uh, we do have a caller. Area code 754. Somebody ahead. just calling in. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, state your name and uh, question or comment. Hello, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, who's calling? What's going on, fellas? It's Seneca uh, calling again from the, uh, the South Florida area. Peace, brother, and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Dang, boy, y'all fellas is a breath of fresh air. Oh, my gosh, man. Hearing all the propaganda all day on the radio, the, 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 and the TV just all lines. I don't, I'm sitting here listening to them like, are they really just, it's, it's okay. It's okay to just keep lying like that. Like, damn, man. Like, and then I turn you guys on and it's like everything is just like it's supposed to be. I'm not right on. the only one seeing this. I'm not the only one feeling this. I'm not the only one paying attention to these proxy races. These ones right. that don't know that they're being huge. In a, in, in a racist manner. It's like they constantly go through with it, too. They You, you see them, you say something to them, hey, man, what's going on? You know what I'm saying? How you feel about um what happened at the Trump rally? Oh, man, you know, those guys, you know, they just shouldn't have been there, man. You know, 
we should just stay out of them. And I'm looking at this dude like, you know what, you're right. But at the same time, you speaking as don't say anything. I'm saying we supposed to get in there and do something about it, brother. We supposed to at least talk to each other and, and, and let each other know what's going on, man, about about these races. So I just wanted to call in and, and, and just tell you, brother, man, your brother, breath of fresh air, say what's up, and uh, I'm just listening and enjoying myself, man. Right on, please. It's good to hear that every now and then, man, uh, for real, you know, because this type of news that we deal with, especially when it comes to killing our kids on a regular basis, you know, we have to look at all those videos. It can just wear the heart down, and you have to wonder, what effect am I having? Am I really making a difference? But we've been blessed enough to have a wider vision and to see that we have had a large impact over the course of time and see the patterns change just from 2012 alone. In 2012, there was no uh, speech in the State of the Union address about criminal reform. And here we are only four short years later, and it is at the top of everybody's list. So we have to, to, to recognize that we are having some kind of an impact. Hey, Sanders said uh, addressing systemic or institutional racism will be at the top of his agenda. So, But again, <laughs> racism is a symptom of slavery. So focus on ending slavery, Sanders, and, and you will uh, the rest will solve itself. So, But we do got right. another caller. We do got another All caller. Right. All right, Eric, right call uh, 402. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. State your name uh, and your comment or question. Uh, yes, can y'all hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, yes, we can. Peace to you. Yeah, how y'all doing? I've been listening. I've been tuning in. But uh, I heard when y'all was talking about uh, trying to get the message out and stuff. You know, have y'all ever thought about trying to connect with people dealing with, uh, you know, when they do the Juneteenth around America? You know, try to talk with people, you know, who who uh, put those together, uh, you know, across across America. Because they, you know, they have where they have people that uh, speak at the Juneteenth and set up booths and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, tell yes, them the sir. real story about telling the real story about abolitionism and tell them about slavery not even being abolished in the first place. I hear you, brother. Yeah. That's a good suggestion. Uh, we've act, I've actually done it. My family and I have led Juneteenth uh, parades and participated in Juneteenth events in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, our, what we do while we're there is try to explain to them that they're celebrating something that never actually happened. The celebration of Juneteenth is when the last slaves in Texas were informed that slavery had ended. Well, they were informed of a lot. <laughs> slavery didn't yeah. end. And you're celebrating yeah. something that did not happen. Which yeah. only leads to uh, people being more confused and believing something that doesn't exist. Hmm. But that's, that's a great what, advice. Yeah, but yeah, but that's how it is with everything. You know, basically, a lot of people we live in lies. You know, so it's hey, if the truth hurts, oh well. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you right. will. Uh, I'm sure you, you will find you know, in our archives. Like y'all uh, keep, just like what y'all keep saying. You know, uh, once you put it out there, you give them the information. After that, it's, you know, it's on them from there on the decision that they make. Either they're going to walk away from it or do something about it. 
Exactly. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, once you become aware of something, you become responsible for it. You then have an option. What do you do about it? You can choose to ignore it, but you can't say you didn't know. Yeah, Jesus, sir. definitely. Hey, uh, uh, I know uh wanted to say uh, hi to everybody. And uh, Scotty's on the line. My mom, she uh, listens to his program a lot and email him. And she, uh, she, you know, I once in a while tuning in here and there, but lately I've been, you know, listening quite a bit, and you know, just sitting right back, on. just listening, because myself. I'm 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 in Nebraska, in uh outside of in Lincoln, Nebraska, and with me, I'm one of those types. You know, a lot of stuff. You know, with the police and all of that, and uh, I kind of, kind of think about what I do now because I have my son and my mom. She stays with me, right. so uh, close. Yeah, so. And I know how I am because I was one of those type. I was looking at one point twenty years for fighting with the police. Mm. So mm. you know, so now it's more. Uh, I guess I kind of keep myself distracted by doing trying to help. You know, some one kid have a nice day or a smile. You know that type of thing, but. Uh, on what on what y'all on what y'all talking about? You, if yeah, like you say, if people just sit and just really pay attention and look on what's going on, it's right there. But then, if that person, you know, it, it, it's a hard choice. You have to sacrifice one way or another. But if there's other ways, you know, for people to be able to help, as y'all, you know, you know, like y'all been saying, uh, I believe, you know, like you were saying earlier that. You found out there's new ways on how, uh, uh, um, on helping dealing with like media part and, you know, just different areas, you know, uh, uh, besides, you know, probably being on the front line, you know, people might, you know, might be able to step up to do that type of stuff. I don't know. But all I know is, Hey, I've been out there, and now I I, I kind of think a little bit more instead of hey, it's on and cracking. You know, start putting the hands on. You know that type just of being thing. codified, moving yeah, behind the enemy lines it, is what I say on Black Talk Radio. You know, just be aware that you on a battlefield. You know what I'm saying, and you want to survive the oh. battlefield. You don't want to become a casualty on the battlefield. You do want to fight the war. <laughs> But you don't want to be a casualty, and that's what it sounds like you talking about. You think well, I got a family now? Uh, I can't be out here battling these slave catchers like that. So I'm gonna have to figure out another way to fight the system. So I feel you. Bro. Yeah. yeah. I like to look at this information. For me, it's like armor of God, so to speak. You know what I mean? It protects because I understand, and the more you understand the safer you can be, uh, make yourself against being just another statistic or your children becoming another, another statistic. And even as we uh, say here that communication is so important, being able to share this information with other people, just sitting and listening to the program over the course of several weeks will give you that information that you need to be able to share so you can wake another person up. And eventually we can make this a landslide. We don't need everybody to understand. 
We just need enough to get critical mass. And critical mass, based on history, is somewhere around 40 to 50% of the population. Oh, yeah. I don't know they if it takes like that much, Max. 5%. Revolutions have been won with 5% of the other. Of the, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. In the leadership quality. Uh, I mean, 5% of 300 million people, if we're talking about behind USA Inc. lines, that, you know, 5%, that, yeah, man, that's enough to really impact some changes. They really put their mind to it. But I heard from uh, some elders and people who study, you know, like the Cuban revolutions, the independence revolutions in Africa for independence and what have you. But only 5% actually actively participated now. It might be a bigger number. I'm sure, you know, you had people who were sympathizers of, you know, the quote unquote rebels or the revolutionaries and probably provided them with supplies, aids, you know, what, whatever they could contribute. But on about 5 percent of the people were, let's just say, actually, you know, soldiers or whatnot. Yes, you're absolutely right. During the height of the abolitionist movement, 5 percent only were professed abolitionists. These were the leaders of the movement. But uh, 45% had an opinion against slavery, and the other 50% had an opinion towards slavery. So it was an either-or thing with the general population. But you're right. It just took a small number of people to actually start it all. They just needed the masters to support them. Yeah, and, and, and I guess like with me, I'm one of those type. I don't care who with me. As long as I'm doing what I got to do, hey, do what I do. You know, Indeed, brother. I, yeah. I think uh, I think with the numbers too that you just dropped in there, just saying, you know, basically it was right down the middle, you know, either for or against. So you had the people that was hardcore driving the movement to end it, then you had a larger portion of people that was like, yeah, I mean, I could see it's, you know, that's probably the wrong thing to do. Then you had the people that was either completely profiting from it, you know, had a job as so you should look at those people as police union members. Corrections Association workers and, you know, all these type of people. Probation officers. Yeah, judges, bailiffs. I mean, these are all people that you should look at that would have definitely been behind that 50% that was for it during slavery as we knew it, you know, 150 years ago. Those would have been the people on that 50% side. So looking at them now in the position they have of authority, well, they can straight up kidnap you over nothing. Just say, hey, you had a look and we brought you in and while we got you here, all this and this happened and we never see you again. So it's that brutal all the way down to people that get parking tickets and can't pay them uh, and end up in there. Or people that, you know, have some kind of fine, a late water bill or something. Like in Flint, they're putting people in jail uh, for not paying them water bills on the poison water. Wow. So you get, you get a poison water bill and then you don't pay it because it's poison water. And then they come and give you a, a serve you notice if you got kids. They're gonna take your kids from the with the child protection because they say you don't have running water in your house since they cut the water off. Well, you don't have running water, so we gotta take your kids. So now you in delinquent on that, and then they're gonna take your house from you and say you're living in a condemned property with no water in it, so you gotta get out of here. And then they'll come take you to jail when you can't pay all these fines. And I mean, this is like, come on, man. Yeah. I'm giving yeah. you poison water. Well. Uh, we got to take our last break, but I do want to thank the caller. Did you have any last thing to share as we move to our next segment? Uh, I guess it's I, I guess it's more just trying to figure out, you know, like how y'all keep saying on getting information out there. But uh, I guess 
uh, yeah, it's just mainly just, you know, uh, I don't know if y'all have steps on how, how y'all do things and how y'all get stuff out there. I can, uh, that's what we had that group, you know, move to abolish 21st century slavery for those sort of things and, and events. Cause it's just, it, everything starts locally. You know, you got to find other abolitionists in your community and then y'all got to plan on how y'all going to address this situation and approach these councilmen who like in my, you know, in a city, not in, in a county I live in, a city probably about 60% white. This is a city where this councilman is talking about, you know, let's talk about how we're going to help these people and not lock them up. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you just got everything starts local and then you have a local group and you hook up with other groups, maybe in the next county or they might be in another state. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, you know, connecting with people on a local level and addressing the issue on, on the grassroots level where you stand and then connecting to the wider national and indeed global abolitionist movement. Thank you, though. Yeah, I Thank guess you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess being in Nebraska, I don't trust too many people <laughs> being out here. Yeah, in so. Nebraska, they're arresting blacks, I believe, at six to one versus white. <laughs> you only oh, yeah. make a really small percentage of the entire population. So your communities are under siege in Nebraska. Yeah, and, yeah. and then when you're in a place oh, like yeah. that, you can you can uh, engage in abolitionist activities online as well because it's sharing. Okay. It, you know, again, it's sharing information. Say that again. I didn't. I didn't. I can't hear you. Understand you. Uh, what I was saying was is that you can uh, you're deep behind enemy lines is what you're saying. So you can't have a face to face. You can't have a face to face with people in that place that you live. But you can engage yeah. in abolitionist activities and support roles online, long as you connect to the internet. Never, you know, spreading information is spreading information. Uh, you know, whether we're coming through the digital airwaves, whether we're coming through, you know, terrestrial, whether we're coming over the television, however you're consuming this media, you know, it's still a transmission of information. So, or if I'm just sharing articles on Facebook or I'm talking to people from all over the world about strategies and, and situations that's ongoing and whatnot. So, you know, get in where you fit in. Amen to that. Uh, just a little stat for you to take with you. In Nebraska, blacks make up 4.9% of the population, but they're incarcerated per 100,000 at 2,418 versus their white counterparts of 290. That is just ridiculous. 2,418 to 290 when you only make up 4.9% of the population. Thanks again for calling in, brother, and hopefully keep listening and spread the word. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages. Muted.
tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts. I'm not sure if I'm even online this moment there. Can you read? Uh, can't hear anything. Unmuted. I'm sorry, I had muted myself. That's why you wasn't hearing anything. <laughs> oh, my okay. Because we were getting well, a lot like, of echo and feedback on the line, so I was trying to clear that up. Sound like it's coming off your radio. Honey, but. Uh, our next segment coming up is going to be our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. As we keep saying, we are in a season where record numbers of people are being exonerated. Every three days, another person is exonerated where they were innocent and yet spent time in prison. They get out in a myriad uh, of ways, whether it be through the Innocence Project, who happens to be hiring right now. So if you want to be a hero, please join the Innocence Project particularly if you have some type of law degree uh, that you can apply to help bring people to freedom. Other people get themselves out, much like uh, one of our uh, previous people that we have featured on here, which would be um, Brother Daryl. This week's rider of the Underground Railroad is Omar Pouncey. So let's start his story, which comes from the Detroit Free Press. It says, decade after representing himself, Flip man to be free. Judge rules suspect was forced to choose between ineffective counsel and representing himself. A 28-year-old Flint, Michigan man who acted as his own attorney at trial maintains he was wrongfully convicted of carjacking, armed robbery, and weapons charges is expected or was released this past Monday. Omar Pouncey had a hearing scheduled in federal court in Detroit at 11.30 a.m. Monday before U.S. District Judge Matthew Leapman and was released on bond and will not be returning to the custody of the Michigan Department of Corrections, according to a court document that was filed last week. He'll actually walk out of the federal courthouse free, said David Moffitt, Pouncey's attorney. According to a court document, a judge found Pouncey's waiver of counsel was involuntary because before his trial, he was forced to choose between an unprepared defense attorney and representing himself. Mulford said Pouncey's conviction was overturned, but he could still be retried in the case. We intend to retry him, John Potbury, a spokesman for the Genesee County Prosecutor's Office, said in an email. Prosecutors have said that Pouncey helped carry out three carjackings in Flint area in the fall of 2005, but Pouncey insists he was, was not involved. After Pouncey was sentenced in 2006, he went to the prison's law library and began studying. Years later, he was called, he called his current attorney and the two began working on his case. One of the conditions for his release is Pouncey must work for Mulford while he is free on bond. We'd like to welcome you to Freedom, brother. After 10 years in that hole, you got yourself out. Salute. And they still forcing him to work, though, this sound like to me, don't it? He and they're threatening to retry him, too. Man, damn. But this brother got himself out in the law library, much like Daryl Padgett did. Yeah, yeah, well, he's in a, he's still under, you know, uh, supervision and whatnot, but um, he is out of, you know, a greater confinement as a term I've heard people use. Indeed. So, shout out and salute to you. All of these cases don't need to be bloody and gory and terrible and horrible. Some of them are a lot easier and simpler 
like this case where a brother decided he would fight his own battles and went and learned what he needed to learn to get out because he was only offered what most of us are always offered, some kind of inept uh, counselor whose main goal is to just to get you in and out as quickly as possible so they can move on to the next case. And this brother took it into his own hands to get himself free. So welcome to freedom. Well, we're coming up on our next segment, which is going to be our abolitionist in profile. And this will be our last of the month that we have been doing of all women for Women's History Month. And this week's abolitionist in profile is Laura Smith Haviland. Uh, Brother Johanna? I don't know if we might have had it. Do you think we get the uh, Scotty? Did you have it recorded or no? Uh, no. Okay. All righty. Well, I will pull it up here, fellas. We'll get the music cues back up. It says, uh, like you said, this is our last one in the in the Women's Month, and I did get praise in my inbox and some thanks for uh, for the New Abolitionist Radio's effort to get women out, you know, and recognizing that and giving them the opportunities to recognize them in their own personal. Uh, social media and, and social actual activities with other people where they're honoring women this month themselves in their own individual groups. So, all right, Scotty. Sorry about that. All right, I'm ready for the for the music. music. Uh, Julia Wardhow. Julia Wardhow was born on May 27, 1819 in New York City. She became a writer, pitting several books and also working on the abolitionist newspaper, The Commonwealth, with her husband, Samuel. Howe was known for writing the lyrics to the iconic song, Battle Hymn of the Republic, and later was highly active in women's suffrage movements. Hey, she died on... Yes. Yeah. You got the wrong one, brother. Yeah, you got the wrong that one. That was last. That was the link from above. The link from above. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Pull it on up the right one here. Live bloopers, y'all. That's all it is. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> no it problem. happens. It happens. All I right, was like, that does sound familiar. Did not just read that last week. <laughs> That's the one. Just right when y'all interrupted me, I was thinking the same thing. Like I thought we already talked about the battle. Him. <laughs> what does she have to do with it? But, you know. All right. Pull it up here again. Take three. You're right. We had such a long list of people of all these different links. This is one of the longest strings we had in the planet page in a long time. All right, so we have tonight Laura Smith Haviland, the Wesleyan pioneer. All right, we're going to take it again. Take it from the top. Laura Smith Haviland, a tiny frontier woman who made the ideals of 19th century Wesleyan Methodists come to life. She was born to Quaker parents in Canada on December 20, 1808. When she was seven, the family moved to New York. What education Laura received came from her mother and a neighboring lady, but the little girl became an insatiable reader. One dark night, her father found her absorbed in a book des describing the horrors of the slave trade. He relieved her distress by telling her that it had been outlawed. With some playmates, Laura visited Methodist prayer meetings. She hungered for a warm religious experience, but was forbidden by her Quaker parents from attending any more of those services. When Laura was 17, she married Charles Haviland. Charles was a committed friend and 
It seemed Laura was forever barred from the spiritual experience for which she still longed. She prayed privately and made the best of her situation. In 1826, Laura's parents moved to southeastern Michigan near Adrian. Three years later, Charles and Laura followed with their own two children, a log cabin, six, 16 by 18 feet, on and on with this woman's life here. So by the time she had four children old enough to learn, she became their school teacher and also a responsibility of teaching the orphans that were out in the country. In 1845, she faced the darkest period of her life in a six-week period. Spell, eerie spells took her husband's life, her mother, her sister, her father, her baby. She almost died herself. After her death, Laura intensified her involvement in the Underground Railroad. In 1846-47, she cleverly foiled the efforts of men from the South to return a family of escaped slaves to bondage. In their rage, the men placed the price of $3,000 on the head of this tiny woman, dead or alive. She defied the offer, making repeated trips to Cincinnati, Ohio, to help escaped slaves. She even slipped into Kentucky to assist them and to encourage an imprisoned abolitionist. She personally escorted some escapees all the way to Canada and spent considerable time near Windsor teaching freedmen. Shortly before the Civil War, she took a daring trip to Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas, attempting to bring out the wife of one slave who had already reached Michigan without the benefit of any weapons such as a stun gun. There she lived in a, in a slave owner's home, seeing the atrocities of slavery firsthand, and once stared down three bloodhounds which were trained to kill. Man, this lady's like an action hero or something. Where's she been? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, new abolitionist radio salutes her efforts. Whatever she had going on, the link is on the page, y'all. <laughs> she indeed was like an action hero. What's going on in this story, man? I'm reading it. I can't believe it myself. Talking about she stared down the bloodhounds and everything else. Salute to Laura Smith Haviland and shout out to the Quakers, uh, who not only in the past were supporters and helped to end, uh, to try to end modern uh, slavery then, but do it today. I'd like to give a personal shout out to Sarah Walton and Sharon Smith, two Quakers right now who are fighting to end modern slavery through injustice, prison for profit, and mass incarceration. So yes, definitely shout out to Laura Smith Haviland with her badass self. Well, we're coming up to the end of our program. We got about ten minutes left. Uh, well, actually, I mean, we can end it kind of early because we got another program coming on Lotus Place. Well, yeah, we got plenty of time to ramble on a little bit without final statements. <laughs> I feel like rambling just a little bit today, <laughs> but nonetheless, every week we close out the show with uh, some final statements that we'd like you to remember and think about until we see you again next week. And make sure when you come back next week, don't come alone, please. The only way we're going to make this happen is by educating people. So help us help educate people. Uh, anybody like to start out this evening's closing statement? I want to start out, and I'm going to share a story. <laughs> okay, I hope y'all bear with me. But I learned about, um, I'm trying to uh, pull it up now. Uh, there's so much going on. Oh, there's a strike coming up uh, with the prisoners in Texas. I think uh, tomorrow, when is it? April the 1st, I think there's going to be a call in. That's shared in the group, Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery, making phone calls, showing in uh, solidarity with the prisoners who plan to do a work stoppage or strike and, and say we're not working anymore we're you know until you meet our demands and what have you so uh, please participate in that uh, where is the story about the man on death row is what I'm trying to find I must not have it on my I know I had it on my personal page y'all bear with me please please because this is a very 
very important story here it is right here innocent man could be put to death there's a, a change.org petition uh, it has been shared on new abolitionist radio and in the move to abolish 21st century slavery group on facebook but uh, let me just share an excerpt in 1983 a family was brutally murdered slashed over 144 times in a span of four minutes the only survivor was their eight-year-old son who was left with his throat cut. According to five federal judges and many experts, the wrong man will be executed for these murders. Kevin Cooper, an African-American man, was convicted of the killings despite two witnesses who said they saw white men driving away from the home in a family stolen car. See video number one, video number two, and video number three. Even the surviving child told the police that it was three white or Latino men who killed his family. And so uh, let me open up the petition because uh, they don't have his name um, in there. And uh, but I believe this is a petition to Judge William A. Fletcher. Uh, what is this man's name? Uh, Y'all should have put his name in there. Right, Kevin Cooper. I did say his name, didn't I? Okay, Kevin Cooper is his name. So, you know, uh, the death penalty is an issue that should be heavily debated. We know that conservatives and whatnot, they believe in, you know, they don't want women to have abortions, but they want to put uh, innocent people to death. Um, it's not like they don't know that the Christ, the uh, you know, the justice, so-called justice system is flawed and what have you. It's not really flawed because it's engineered to do what it's engineered to do. They'll never admit that, though. But they are admitting that there are some problems with, you know, people in prison that shouldn't be there or what have you. And so here is another reason why, you know, um, Bernie Sanders appeals to me or his platform because he has always been you know, um, uh, abolitionists and, and I mean, uh, abolitionists in terms of the death penalty. And I'm also reminded of the man who got off a of death row who asked Hillary Clinton, even in the man face, an innocent man who sat on death row for I don't know how many years before he was proven innocent. Even in the face of that, Hillary Clinton still stood steadfast, looking that man in his eye and saying that she still support the death penalty. So. Um, this man needs a lot of help. A lot of people have been sharing the petition, but it says they need 42,322 signatures to, uh, to still uh, reach their goal. All right, so I, I just shared that. I'm going to share it again on New Abolitionist Radio's page, so it'll be at the top. So, um, you know, um, slavery, you know, in all its forms needs to be abolished. Thanks. Indeed, indeed. Well, I suppose, uh, Max, you you gonna uh, wrap it up to, at the end here. So I will. Uh, I would just say mine. Um, people quote these, you know, different things and say, you know, why well, they don't support, you know, I guess like either Martin Luther King or any of the so-called leaders that we've had. Um, we've had some arguments recently about uh, Ken Thompson's uh, position as the DA there in Brooklyn over the last week since he said what he said about uh, Peter Liang not, you know, needing to do any time, and there's been all kinds of conflicts behind that. I mean, from 
both sides I can understand it, but you know, we are abolitionists, so I feel like as an abolitionist I have to support the man, you know, keeping his job and doing what he's been doing, even though this is a horrible thing that's been said, the sentencing doesn't actually occur until April. But in the same line, I mean, we have all the people that we look at as some type of activist hero or at least an activist actionist uh, that has affected history in some way. So, I mean, as much as his contribution, I mean, I look also at, you know, the flaws that people find in MLK, for example, and talk about his system of, you know, saying, well, you know, nonviolence and this and that. I mean, yeah, sure, it's good to trash these people, I guess, if it make you feel better in the after they're gone or whatever, but they were doing what they could do at the time. So, I mean, one of the things he said, though, is that everybody can be great. I mean, this is a direct quote of his. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. So, you know, that love is not necessarily the love that we see of people that can love us back and can be right there. So when I smile at you, you smile at me, or you give me something, I give you something. And you support the life I'm living and just, you know, I can go do what I want to do. I mean, this is love like we have in the most common sense, but we're talking about love an abolitionist has for the slaves. When you love like that kind of a deep love as a person, you see every one of these victims as somebody in your family. You see that as your family member. That's your son. That's your uncle. That's your cousin. That's your father. We talk about fatherless children in these communities, of these black communities all over the country, where we're showing you that a million plus are in these prisons behind nonviolent, non-person-related, drug-related only sentences that are 100 times the one for the last 30 years, and they're still 18 to one now with Obama. So these communities have been victimized systemically. I mean, we've proven that for years. So, you know, all you have to do is serve, like Martin said. So, I mean, even this morning, my personal scripture reading that I was trying to do this morning before I got going, one of the uh, scriptures I read was uh, Psalms 11 and 3. It just says, when the foundations, basically, of justice and equality and of freedom, when these things are, are being destroyed, what do the righteous people do? So, I mean, that's really the question I'd have to leave with tonight. Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors, what will the righteous do? Max, I don't know if you had yourself muted, but uh, we can't hear you. Uh, I think you are muted. Okay, go ahead. There you go. I just want to uh, close out with some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to the people who contributed these wonderful works of art, uh, poetry, to the pr uh, production of the Incarceration Nation in Black and White. That would be Jessica Patrice Dorsey Coulter, Boris Booz Roger, and Tamika Staley. Uh, all of you provided some wonderful art. Make sure that you guys check out the video Incarceration Nation in Black and White. I would also like to uh, give a shout out to Nikima Levy Pounds out right now. Uh, the verdict just came in regarding Jamar Clark's killing. Uh, no charges at all. Uh, I know she's been leading the fight, and I wish her all the luck in the world. And I want everybody who's listening to me now to remember one thing in particular. Abolition, ending slavery, is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace.